Season 2 of the Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mack. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. You can find us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com, on Twitter at Podcasting Light, and on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. Today's guest is Chris Conti, and when we recorded this episode in August, we didn't know it was going to run after LDI, so we didn't talk about PRG's amazing ground control remote follow spot system, which Chris had a huge hand in the development of. It debuted at LDI and won Best Debuting Product in Staging and Rigging. I encourage everyone to check out Ground Control on the PRG website. Now, on with the show. We are here at the beautiful PRG New Jersey shop. This is your host, Jason Marin, and I have my co-host, Teresa Unfried, with me. Hello. Welcome back to Season 2. Thank you. Uh, Teresa, can you remind everyone how to find you? Yes, you can find uh, Taj Event Productions online at tajeventproductions.com or on Facebook. And our guest today is Chris Conti. Hello. Welcome, Chris. Hi, how are you? Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And thank you for your hospitality here in the uh, PRG uh, previous suite. It's the least we could do. So you, the PRG has done a lot of really, really exciting things over the last couple of years. And you have been responsible for most of them? No, 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 no. No, it's, there's a, that's one thing I can say about our company or this company is that it's, uh, there's a, a large group of people that really enjoy what we do and, enables us to do a lot of these big shows. It's it's definitely a team effort, 100% on some of this stuff. Okay. I'm glad that that's the way it works. What is your actual title, and then what does that title mean? So I am a product manager for Luminaires and S400. Uh, and what that means is I'm responsible for doing training for clients and employees on our proprietary fixtures like Best Boy and Bad Boy, as well as our Series 400 uh, system. I also do um, technical support. So when things go horribly wrong, I get a lot of phone calls. Um, you don't not, sleep? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> actually, no. No, I have, two, I have two little kids, so you know I don't really you sleep You don't really sleep anyway. <laughs> no, you actually would be surprised. It's not, it's not, the technical support stuff is not as bad. Most of the stuff that happens is... Uh, you know, it's this business. You know, of course. Yeah, it's always something weird or something unique. and Some little ghost. Yeah, and that's that's part of the fun. So I do a lot of, so I do training. I do technical support. Uh, I do a lot of demos for clients and stuff like that, like, you know, educating them on the differences, not only in our gear, but other manufacturers' equipment. Uh, and then I do, I work on product development. So, you know, we're, we're unique in that not only do we rent equipment, but we design and build a lot of our own equipment. And generally what we try to do is, you know, we buy a lot of stuff off the shelf, but occasionally there's things that there's gaps in the market. And that's the stuff that we try to develop and build ourselves is, is to fulfill those gaps. The other type of stuff that we'll build and develop is, is uh, solutions. You know, people come to us all the time and say, hey, we need X, Y, and Z to do this show. There's nothing out there. Can you help us? So we'll do a lot of that type of type of that work. So uh, when we do product development, we have an engineering staff. Um, it's spread around the globe. A good chunk of it is in Dallas, Texas. Um, they handle lights and power distribution, as well as some of the LED stuff, um, well, inbox and consoles. Uh, just hold it a second there. So let's let's talk about what the products are that you manage, and then we'll go into a little more detail about All right, what so, all that means. So I manage Best Boy Spot. Best Boy HP, which is our new 1500 watt uh, Best Boy version, Best Boy Wash, and Bad Boy. 
Uh, and then on the Series 400 side, I manage the Series 400 system. So that's all the racks and the modules and the... Which is a power and data distribution system. That's correct. Power and data includes Ethernet switches and fiber optic uh, for that. And that's a, core, that's a core component of a lot of the shows that we do. So yeah, those are the products that I handle. Okay. So you have the engineering staff that's spread all around the globe that engineers these. So where, 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 does, the, where does the concept for one of these products come from? Like, let's, say, let's say Bad Boy. You know, Bad Boy came from our concert touring guys. They wanted, a, it was uh, mid-2000s. We were, I mean, LED walls were getting bigger and getting brighter. Mm-hmm. And people were struggling to compete with that on the lighting side, you know. So the concert touring guys came to us and said, we really need a bright, a really bright fixture, something with a lot of horsepower that's going to cut through that. So that, and that's what drove that product was, was that, that was the primary focus. And the secondary thing is they wanted fast colors, like ultra fast colors and high resolution optics, you know, big zooms and stuff like that. So, you know, when we drilled down to it, we got a product spec and then went off and uh, try to come up with something, and the end result after uh, Bad Boy was like two years of development. I was going to ask, I'm like, how long does it take to come up with something when someone goes, "Hey, here, this is what we want. Make yeah, this happen." It depends upon the, it depends upon depends the on how uh, complicated. Yeah, it is, the product is, and you know, if there's something already exists, like if we already have, like you know, so Best Boy Wash, our wash fixture, mm-hmm. it was only it was less than a year, and that was just because we recycled. A lot of the parts and a lot of the design from our Best Boy fixture. You okay. know, we reuse the upper enclosure, reuse the yoke. Um, the optics was really the only new portion of it that we had our design from scratch. Okay. So, and we do everything. We design the optics. We design the um, the color system, the mechanical stuff, and the the electronics, the embedded embedded software that controls it all. That's so we amazing. do amazing. Yeah, that's really cool. And it's awesome because people come to us and like, you know, we were working with uh, U2 and Alex Murphy came to us from U2 and Willie Williams. And they asked us, they said, you know, we're using your bad boys as follow spots. We would love to be able to have an intensity scaling feature where if the guy's too bright, I can just pull them down without having to tell the follow spot operator to do that. I'm like, oh, well, we can do that go back to the engineering staff, and 48 hours later, we had new software that was tested, and we loaded into the lights, and we were off and running. So stuff like that. It's That's quick cool. and easy. Yeah. It's, it was really fun, uh, and it's nice to be able to help them out. And and then we roll that out, and once we do a, a feature release like that, we then will roll it out into the rest of the fleet so that everybody can take advantage of it. So who wrote the, the spec, actually actual spec that the engineers worked from for Bad Boy? Uh, I... That was actually, the Bad Boy started before I became product manager with it, so I came in after that. So I'm not exactly sure who wrote okay. the spec, but I can say that I wrote the specification for Best Boy. Okay, so let's look at Best Boy then. Sure. You know, I, so, you know, Bad Boy is an awesome fixture. You know, it produces mm-hmm. more light than, well, it seemed to produce more light than we knew what to do with, but now it, <laughs> now not, not, not quite as much. Not quite enough. It's never enough. It's <laughs> unbelievable. It's an arms race. It kind of is. Uh, yeah. but, but before we leave Bad Boy, I do have to ask you one question, and that's what happened to the quantum color system, because I was a big fan. Uh, you know, I love the quantum color system. You know, for, for your listeners that don't know what quantum was, it was three fixed color wheels, and each color wheel had seven colors on it, and they were uh, arrayed in by hue. So you had a wheel that had a lot of reds, 
uh, and magentas. You had a wheel that was a lot of cyan. Well, like, like the red wheel, it went from like, it was like a light straw paint down to like R27 paint. Yeah, that's correct. The, so the advantage of the quantum system is that we can get these incredibly rich and vibrant colors that you just can't get with a color mixing system. Um, and, the, and the additional advantage of that is that because we're going through a single pane of glass, mm-hmm. we're not cutting down on the output as much. The problem with the quantum system is that uh, is the transitions. You know, to go from like a red to a cyan, you're you're seeing the colors roll. You're not seeing a smooth crossfade. And for a lot of our customers, that was just uh, you know, they loved the output. They loved what the fixture could do, but they really just needed that. Like they were willing to transition. yeah. They were willing to sacrifice the sat- super saturated stuff uh, for the um, the smooth transition. So it, the, the color system was very similar uh, to what was in the Icon fixture oh. in the late 90s. And our concertorian guys at that time, a lot of them were former LSD uh, people. So from the LSD, the, the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was where that spec came from. I see. So there were some LSD folks that came over to mm-hmm. to the engineering side? Of- yeah. So our the engineering group is made up of... Uh, Former Verilite engineers, former LSD engineers, and former Nocturne engineers. I see. So it's a it's a pretty wide group of people, uh, which it was great because we have a wide skill set that we can draw from when Absolutely. we're working on something. But all folks who made some of the best stuff there ever was, and some of the worst stuff as well. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> um, but you know, you I, you know, uh, you know, I look at some of that stuff, and there's no way we could have gotten where we are today without having. A few bad ones in yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you look at Project Medusa. Yeah. You know, which was the, the, the first thing that, as far as I know, it was the first device that used the TI mirror array. Mm-hmm. Like before anyone even thought of putting it into a projector, someone thought of putting it into a moving light. Mm-hmm. And it was crazy. But wow. Yeah. You know, even though that product had limited success, you know, a lot of it because it was brightness, you know, it wasn't very bright. Very cool. And it, it totally broke open the field of what you can do with, right. you know, that stuff. And a lot of that technology we're still using today, you know, like the Mbox, that's a spinoff of that product. Really? Oh, absolutely. Okay, that makes sense. Um, you know, some of the engineering that we use, optical engineering, some of the control engineering has, has trickled down to what we do today in the best boy and bad boy. So, well, I'm really glad that stuff wasn't gotten rid of and it was, you know, preserved and it was used and, you know, the parts that could be used were, were reused. Yeah. Oh, you know, I'll tell you, when we're working, when we're developing a new product, Generally, what we'll do is we'll go out and we'll grab old equipment and look at it like, you know, in the Best Boy wash fixture, we decide to make a change to the color, the CMY color. Um, You know, everyone's using a very similar uh, saturated point of the cyan, the amber, and magenta. We took a long, hard look at that and said, you know, if we changed one of those colors to the saturation point just a little bit, it, it opens up the realm of all these other colors that we could use. So one of the things that we looked at was, as an example, was a VL4. The color was tuned to the lamp, and uh, we could get these really rich colors because the magenta specifically was at a different was at, at a different point. So that's what we did with the wash is we've changed it, and as a result, we get this unbelievable, almost UV blue and these magentas that we're just in reds that we just don't normally get. The downside is it doesn't necessarily match the rest of the rig. So that was something that we struggled with. Is it okay that it doesn't match? You know, um, in the end of the day, we kind of figured like, you know, it, it doesn't need to because 
it isn't about using one or two light types of lights anymore. It's now designers are using everything from Sharpies to color blasts to uh, Solaris flare. I mean, there's all kinds of sources, so and they're not going to match. Right. You know, so like when Best Boy came out, you know, everyone was like, well, how's it compared to a VL3000? You know, it was, the bar has been set and that's, we have to be able to be as good or, I mean, and if we're different, we have to be. I there mean, has di- to be a reason for the yeah, difference yeah. because, I mean, you're, of course, you don't want just the same thing every time you design something. That's why you're f- doing something different. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I can see. The and there, and there's, we, we have that. a lot of clients that rely on the fact that a lot of stuff works very similarly. Right. So you were responsible for the specifications on Best Boy 4000. Yeah. Oh, a, gr- a group of us worked on it, but I was one of the people that headed it up. Yeah. It's a really impressive fixture. Thanks. And it, it seems like when some people were thinking about how to put as much power into the thing as possible, you guys think about how to collect as much light from the bulb as possible and use it efficiently. Yeah. So, uh, you know, what drives that or what drove us in that range is that, um, the amount of stuff that we wanted to the fixture to do meant that we were going to have a lot of stuff in the uh, in the head in the specifically in the optical train, mm-hmm. you know, because you have color mixing, color wheel, color temperature wheel, you have two gobo wheels, you have an effects wheel, you have zoom, iris, and framing. It's a lot of stuff, and we had a very specific requirement in like how long and how big the fixture was to be. So that, li- that immediately limited us to, okay, you know, the type of lamp, like we need to, an, a smaller arc source to keep everything down. The other thing that limits us is with all that stuff in there, heat becomes an issue. You're going to manage the, if I put a bigger bulb in there, it means it's, I'm, I got a lot more heat. I got a lot more energy that I got to deal with. Uh, and in some cases, a bigger bulb also means that the optical train has to be physical, like the, the openings have to be bigger. So the feature set kind of pushed us into being a mu- much more efficient. And I mean, we sp- and the optics is where we hang our hat. We spend a lot of time. We have a fantastic uh, optics guy that we work with, uh, Doc Huff, and um, he spent a lot of time crunching the numbers on that to get the to get the output and to get the you know, to get the feature set to do what we wanted it to do. Right. So how did you go from the page to first prototype, and what was that process like? Well, one, how long was it? Uh, it was it was almost uh, it was almost two years. The, what dictates everything is is the optical path, um, you know, your source, you know, all the stuff that you're going to do. It. So we spent a, the first is the optics guy has to figure out okay how much light are we going to get through it, uh, what's it going to look like, you know, what's the shape of the lens is going, what's the prescription lens is going to have to be, what coatings are we going to have to use. So um, they spent a lot of time in virtual reality. I mean, we, use, we have a computer program that'll simulate how every ray of light comes out of the light bulb and when it hits a surface, what it does. And we can actually predict, uh, we can actually get, the computer can actually generate uh, imagery uh, of what a gobo would actually theoretically look like. And uh, from that, it's just a constant refinement. You know, you may, they might tweak a piece of glass or tweak an opening and then I'll discover that, one color of the spectrum is, is so you get a weird color shadow or the gobo's not in focus properly or it's focused on the edges but not in the center at certain zoom angles. Or when I run the zoom, the glass is hitting, running into the wheel. So it's a constant refinement. Um, it's it's designed by attrition. You know, you just keep on knocking it down. So you finally get to a point where the compu- everything looks good on the computer and then we build a prototype. And, and then we'll see what, you know, what does the prototype do? Is it 
first off, does it does it match what we predicted? Right. You know, what the computer does it do predict- everything the computer yeah. said? And then you know you run into design problems along the way, like okay, how do I mechanically? How do I get you know if I only have this much, you know, if I only have an inch of space for your color system, you know, how am I going to get all the wheels and the belts and everything in there? It's a really interesting exercise, and you know, I'm as technical as I am. I'm not an engineer. I, I mean, I have a degree in theater. And I rely on our engineers to do that. We have a couple really great mechanical engineers and embedded software and electrical engineers. I mean, these guys used to work for Texas Instruments, building missiles. I mean, these guys, a couple of them, like, you know, John Covington worked on the very first VL. Oh, okay. So, I mean, these guys know are really, really, really good. Um, so I rely, certainly I rely on them to do their job and to say what works, what doesn't work. But what I handle as far as is like, when we're in the design process, I'll be like, you know what? That is not going to survive on the road. Or, you know, gotcha. that's a great design, but I can't get, you know, how do I service that? How do I take it apart? Uh, you know, I used to tour full time and you do provide show. the field. Yeah. So, I, yeah, that's my gig. <laughs> so, and it's a revision, a constant revision of that. And we do a lot of it in 3D modeling, looking mm-hmm. at ahead of time, and then we build stuff. And sometimes it works totally well, and sometimes it's a total disaster, and we have to go back to the drawing board on things. But for the most part, it's we can generally get us into the ballpark via the computers before we ever actually build something. So you weren't around when, when PRG decided to start producing its own fixtures, but it's it's a very, you know, I feel like it's, it's sort of a throwback to the sort of LSD and Viralite concept of, you know, we'll produce the fixtures and then we'll do the show with them. Yep. Was there a hope to sort of go back to that sort of style, or was it just a, another way to service your clients? Uh, it was uh, it was another way to service our clients. I mean, and it's something that's in our DNA. I mean, I mean, uh, you look back to like Harris Production Services, where Jerry Harris. I mean, they designed all that automation stuff for like Phantom of the Opera and Les Mis, and uh, you know, Verilite with Rusty Bruchet, where we designed you know our own lights, and so it, it's something that's been in our DNA. Sure. Um, and then, you know, as we kind of realized that lighting's become very commoditized and it was a way for us to differentiate ourselves from our competition is that we can offer, uh, solutions to problems. Um, we can offer premium products by developing our own equipment. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. So the, so the first prototype of Best Boy comes you know, you, you finally have one and you start showing it. So who do you start showing it to designers? You started showing it to rock and roll guys. So it's a it's a um, it's a mix. I mean, we've, we have to. Pure is a big ship. Um, so the first part of it is that we got to show and educate our own employees what's coming down the pike, because uh, a, a lot of our account managers and people have have exposure to. Sh- I mean, we go to pretty much every PRG office globally and say, okay, here's here's what we're working on. This is what it looks like. Um, is this something that your clients can use? I mean, we, we already know uh, ahead of time. We've already had those discussions ahead of time. But then we come back with them with the prototype and say, this is where we're headed. Or, or this is the product that we've – you've given us the stuff that you you want us to do, and now here's the result of it. And uh, so we first show our, show our employees what we're about to release. And then in that process, we, sh- we grab our clients, select clients. You know, there's designers that we have to consult with and talk to before we're going to release anything. And I mean, all manufacturers deal with that. So then we show them, and part of it is a gut check just to make sure that we didn't miss the boat on something. In the case, a great example is Bad Boy. You know, I came in right at the end of the design process of Bad Boy, so I was there for all the demos and stuff. And the consistent thing that we were getting out of the Bad Boy feedback was there was no frost in the fixture. 
I'm like, okay, that's something we missed. So we went back in and added it in after the fact. We figured out how to do that. So, so we'll make tweaks as we go along and sure. um, things like that. Uh, and then it becomes a race of, well, I got a gig. I'm going to use this on tomorrow. <laughs> Can I use these prototypes? No. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a race to get into production. It's a race to the financial side, make sure all that works that we can account for. You know, to get the cash to to purchase all the parts and stuff like that, and to fabricate, and it's a race to get products out because most of the time it ends up being, it gets specified on a job, and that's what we're trying to get get it done in time for a job. How long from prototypes to actually being able to use them? Bad boy, we went right from I think we had uh, three months. Three months. Yeah. It was, so people are sitting there going. Oh yeah, Come it was. On. Yeah, yeah, it was scary. Because you don't want to go too long, right? I no. mean, if you go too long, then they forget all about the product yeah. in general and yeah. find something else. Yeah, I mean, it was scary. And in the, like the first, you know, we did a couple small stuff, but really the first big project on Bad Boy was the U two three sixty. But we had like I think we had, we did like Oasis or Noel Gallagher, and then like one or two small, medium, small stuff, and then went, I went like we went all in, all in on it, man. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, whoa! <laughs> I remember the first time I used them was on um, the Steve Winwood concert at mm-hmm. the Uptown Armory, and we only had eight of them, but they kind of blew my mind. As a programmer, I just I couldn't believe what the thing was capable of. I couldn't believe somebody would build that fixture. Yeah. The first time we fired it up, I was like, oh my goodness, this is crazy. Yeah. I mean, and, and then people look at the physical size of the fixture and they're like, oh, you know, it's a big, it's a big light. It's, it's, you know, it's 168 pounds. It's not small, but yeah. you know, you need, I mean, there's a lot of glass in there. I mean, uh, that fixture I think has uh, 14 lenses and arrayed in four groups. I mean, it's almost all glass. So to get the output, that's what we had to do. No, I mean, I get it. You know, I, I, when I did my, my Verilite tech training with uh, Todd Kessler, he had mentioned that, you know, on like a VL3K, a quarter of the price of the fixture is the glass. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, I get it. it. It has to be right. I mean, you, you, can, you can do a sort of junk box fixture with sort of no lensing and have no output, and you're using a ton of power, mm-hmm. or you can do what you do with Best Boy. Yeah. Where it was a nine, like 900, 700 watt. 700 watt, yeah, that we're getting uh, 20,000 lumens out of. So, I mean, what's interesting is like most most moving lights uh, tend to be about twenty percent efficient. So, about twenty percent of the light that the bulb generates actually makes it out the makes front. Makes it out the front of it, yeah. Uh, with Best Boy, we're slightly above forty percent efficient, which is really good. And same with Bad Boy, um, we're a little more efficient. But you know, despite the efficiency, like you know, we were still getting creamed by. Um, you know, Best Boy was really t- designed to compete with the VL3000 and 3500. You know, as a rental company, it's been a pain in the ass for us that we have to have keep two different fixture types in the inventory. You know, why can't we put it all in one fixture? And right. engineering-wise, that's very difficult to do. Um, but we managed to get through that and do it. It's been very successful for us. Um, but now, again, the arms race has you know sped up, and there's new fixtures out that are you know brighter. Um, but to be fair, you know, lamps have matured and changed. You know, lamps have gotten smaller and brighter. So currently we're in the process of uh, we have a Best Boy HP high power, which we're putting a 1,500-watt fi- uh, lamp, and I think we get like 35,000 lumens out of it. So Are the just, lamps becoming more efficient? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm assuming that they would yep, have lamps, to. Yeah, more efficient. The lamps, they get smaller, and the chemistry, the chemistry inside evolves. They're figuring out how yeah. to come with us on the whole thing. Yeah. Well, I have to ask you this because, you know, uh, one of our previous interviews was with Bobby Hale from High End, mm-hmm. and he had suggested that 
the days of the short arc bulb are numbered because the driver for them was not entertainment because you can't make money just making bulbs for entertainment. Sure. And that with architecture and so much, so much of that going towards LED, that the manufacturers are going to be less and less interested in building these extremely high output, extremely high CRI short arc bulbs. What are your thoughts on that? I think the days are numbered indeed. Um, but I don't think it's... Um, we're seeing... What's interesting is that uh, short arcs are, are evolving as well. I mean... You know, it used to be you get 700 hours max out of a fixture. The reality was 500 hours of usable light out of a short arc. You know, these platinum series of bulbs and the, or the Osram series series, they're 1,500 hours. So, I mean, so they've been able to increase. And they're also working on their chemistry to, to get the green out of them and stuff like that. So I think we're seeing a, an evolution of that. You know, I think LED right now is, without a doubt, uh, a viable... I should clarify something in that moving lights, I think, kind of fall into like three classes as far as horsepower. You know, you have your 700 watt class, which is anything, you know, 100 watts to 575 to 800 watts. That's your 700 watt class. You have your 1200 watt class of fixtures, which is like, you know, your VL 3000s, your Vipers, you know, Vipers 1000 watts, the VL 3000s 1200 watts. And then you have the big guns, the 1500 watt stuff, which is like, you know, like your bad boys, your BMFLs, your VL 4000s are up there. So you have different classifications. Right now, LED absolutely, I think, is a, a completely viable and, and a great alternative to short arc in that 700-watt class range, without a doubt. We are just starting to see the LEDs evolve to the point where we can use them in the 1,200-watt in class, that mid-tier class. Um, I think we got a while to go before the 15... Uh, 15 arcs. And oh, I'm, no, yeah, no doubt. And I'm not entirely convinced at that output level that an LED is going to be able to get there. I think eventually it will, but I think that's a little bit ways out um, just because of the output, the heat that at that class is, I mean, it's, that's a really tough thing to deal with. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we'll see. I mean, time will tell. But I think short arcs are indeed, their days are definitely numbered. Well, I mean, one of the reasons I brought that up is sort of there is no clear way forward that that can replace them right now. There's sort of no obvious thing that can take the place of a 1,500-watt short arc bulb. Not necessarily true. I mean, it depends upon the application. I mean, because you look at some of these big uh, LED arrays, you know, stuff that they use, like, on the Empire State Building, where it's a big array of LEDs. You know, yeah, you can get that output, but, you know, the fixture's physically big. Yeah. The trick is, is can you get 1,500 watts in a... In a smaller package. In a smaller package. Yeah. Uh, there, therein lies the rub. And I think it'll get there eventually. It's just a matter of time. I think, I think the, the LED sources are still a moving target as well. I mean, everyone's using RGB, RGBA, RGBW. Then you have remote phosphors. I mean, there's... there's and the phosphors are interesting. They open up a different realm within the LEDs as well. And there's a bunch of uh, promising stuff coming down the pike, uh, other promising things that are coming down the pike, I should say. Have you had situations where a manufacturer wants to stop making a bulb that you need for your units? Not yet. Keyword being yet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, not that I know of. Okay, well, that's good news. So the next iteration of Best Boy was the HP, and then came the wash. And mm -hmm. sort of what drove the development of the wash? Uh, everyone was like, oh, we need a wash fix. Well, I shouldn't say not everyone. I, we looked at the market and realized that there was a gap in the marketplace. Um, the VL 3500 wash was a fantastic wash light. The Mac XB, uh, uh, 2000, Max 2000 wash XB was a great wash light. 
but there are some limitations on what those fixtures could do. Um, there are some things that people didn't like about, you know, as good as the 3500. And I love the 3500. I should, and Verilite has done an amazing job with that, I should say that. But, you know, the color's not very fast on it. The zoom is very clunky. It's not a big zoom range. So that's where we said, well, you know, I think we can, we took a look at it and said we can do something and improve upon that. And so that's what we did. Uh, and then, you know, what's interesting in the market has, it, 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 this is a true wash fixture, um, I should say that. And now we're seeing an evolution where, I should say, we, we've seen two evolutions here in the last uh, five years. The Sharpie, you know, with the beam fixtures. Mm-hmm. And now we're seeing a hybrids where they're like beam wash or wash or beam spot. So that's a little bit of a murky moving target right now. So we'll see where that goes. Well, but, beam lights are cute and all, but they're sort of, they have that one thing they do. Yes. And, you know, yes. generally, if I'm looking for true. a fixture, one, it should be able to light things, not just light the haze. Yep. And and two, it should be able to do more than that one thing. Yeah, and that's why I think that's pushing that. The, well, that's why I think we're seeing these hybrids right now. I like the Mythos and the Pointy. Uh, but, we'll you know, we'll see. You know, it's like everything, like every evolution in this business, nothing has gone away. <laughs> we just keep on adding stuff on top. That's, that's true. Well, the little moving light has gone away. You know, we just did this project with PRG not long ago where we had 120 VL5s plus some bad boy follow spots. And it's sort of like there was no credible replacement for the VL5 on that project. You know, there's no one's made anything to replace that thing yet. Yeah. It's so, amazing. <laughs> it's 20 plus years old. It's amazing. Uh, but, you know, speaking of that project, so we had the bad boy follow spot accessory, mm-hmm. um, which is an awesome piece of hardware that, you know, it, it, you know, the, the fact that we can control certain functions from the fixture and certain functions from the console is is awesome. But I saw that that was a very iterative process. I, you know, it looked like the thing you started with was very different than the thing that it is if you rent it today. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the concept of using moving light as a follow spot has been around since the VL1. I mean, it's been around a long time. I mean, I remember touring with cyber lights, taking the mirrors off and using them as follow spots. And then... And I think that, what was it, Clay Packy had a... The shadow. Yeah, the shadow, right. I, 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 I always Sorry. felt like it should have taken off, taken off more than it did. Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't know why. <laughs> it, a lot, I mean, half of it in this business, I think, is timing. Absolutely. You know? But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, and then we had a, a couple projects come up where they said, look, we really want a, a local controller for the... For the bad boy specifically, I said okay. So that was that was actually Bob Barnhart from Full Flood was the driving force behind that. And he and his guys had cobbled up, actually had prototyped something, and we said, you know, they showed it to us. Said we can do that for you, no problem. So it was we were trying to to provide a solution to a client, mm-hmm. and then it just so happened that everybody else saw it was like, oh yeah, that's what we want too. So we just hit the print button, <laughs> so to speak. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, and you know, it's, it's still evolving, mm-hmm. you know, you know, we've added some new features, being able to local frost control, intensity scaling. Um, you yeah, know, wait, explain intensity scaling. Intensity scaling. So the best way, it's like an inhibitive submaster on, on a console. So if the operator is running your follow spot at full, the board operator can scale that back. You know, oh, it's that's too bright. Let me just take it back. Even though the op, the local operators is at full, the the actual output of fixtures only at seventy percent because the board operator has has pulled the intensity down just a little bit. So it gives you it, like an inhibitive. It gives you uh, you can override the control and and then give it back to them. That sounds like a really great feature. It's awesome. 
I wish I could take credit for it. That was uh, Alex Murphy from YouTube. Oh, I see. Yeah, came up with that. I was like, we can do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, and it's it's been very popular. It's a great feature. Um, uh, yeah, and I think we you know the we've had a couple additional crests. The, the current the next big thing that we're working on now is that. Um, is being able to take that controller for the bad boy and, and use it on the best boy as well. And Manny Treason uh, was someone that pushed us into that, and we've since developed that as well. So That's exciting. Yeah. Because I think that the best boy has lighter field than the bad boy does. Oh, yeah. And the HP is, gonna, is even flatter. Yeah, the bad boy, the bad, there's nothing subtle about the bad boy. It's not, I mean, it's big, it's the field's peaky, it's, it's yeah, there's nothing subtle about it whatsoever. <laughs> and, you know, I... You know, I get a lot of flack about that too. People are like, "Oh, you know, the field's not." And I said, "You know, you're right. It, it doesn't." And but I'm not trying to be everything. What it does, right. it does very well. Because uh, to me, I think moving lights. In, I mean, have become like golf clubs. You're going to use a specific light for a specific application. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, you know. There's and there's a place for everything. And I'll be the first one to tell you that they're a bad boy. There are places and things that you should not use a bad boy. Period. We'll be happy to rent you something else that does. It's not the end-all, be-all. So you mentioned that you know you also handle special projects that clients come to you with, and that the follow-spot attachment for the Bad Boy Starter is one of those. Yeah. What's another one that you can talk about? And one that stayed really a a sort of single-user, single-show kind of solution. Um, Did Autopar start that way? Yeah, Autopar was specific for, you know the auto market. They just didn't want to have the labor of, you know, when the cars were in place to have to send guys up and either climb it or in lifts and stuff to refocus the lights. So that was a, that was definitely a single purpose project. I mean, it doesn't even have a dimmer on it. It's either on or off. A lot of the custom stuff tend to be uh, special project stuff tends to be on the S 400 side, like datum, you know, how, how we do things like the Super Bowl and and such. Uh, a great example is uh, two years ago we did the Super Bowl here at MetLife Stadium, mm-hmm. and um, Bob Barnett was the designer, and they had a pile of magic panels. Like uh, it was like over two hundred. It was over two hundred, I think. And what was interesting is they wanted to be able to. There were several songs where they wanted to in the verses of the song they wanted to use control from the lighting console and do like three four part color chases, you know. Uh, with the effects engine on the lighting console. But then for the chorus of the song, they wanted to pixel map stuff. So that required us to engineer a a DMX merge. Now, that that ability is actually built into our S400 system. The nuts and bolts of how to accomplish that, because it ended up being a a 160-way DMX merge on the fly. You know, I had 80 universes of... uh, control for the magic panels on the desk and the 80 universes coming from a media server, cramming all that together to do an highest takes precedence merge on the fly. The stuff was built into our, into our S 400 to do that. But we discovered that we were a, there was some, we were seeing a little bit of latency as a result of the way the hippo outputted the data. So it ended up us, us having to, on the hardware side, optimize the data path. You know, we had to switch to a gigabit fiber to make sure that the data got there at the right rate and everything. Uh, and then we had to tweak some of the stuff under the hood in S400 to better optimize the, 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 the data coming out of the breakout boxes, which, and since we've released that to everybody, everybody can use that now. But that was a custom engineered solution. Like, you know, and 
the problem, really the, the, the crux of that problem is what I call the sprinkler problem. You know, the sprinkler furthest from the spigot is going to get the water last. Right. Uh, and in that type of scale of that option, you got to minimize that as much as possible. So that was something that we engineered and worked with, uh, worked with them on, and it looked good. It was great. That sounds like a great usage of all of the uh, resources that PRG has, you know, being weighed in to deal with this issue. I know that's been a question for me about how this sort of thing gets done, where it's, you know, clearly there's video content being run across a whole bunch of fixtures, and then there's clearly lighting content being yeah. you know, run to them as well, and how is that happening? Um, I know personally I've only ever used HTP mergers, but is, is, it, is it really just HTP? Yeah, I mean, you can do latest takes precedence, but there's that there's some, I mean, everything has a double, there's a double-edged sword to all of those. Well, I figure whether, LTP has to add some kind of like crazy latency to the... Yeah, I mean, there's some processing, and I mean, when you're doing something like that, you want to engineer it as simply as possible, because you're usually on something like that, the scale, you just have this massive amount of gear, massive amount of data that you got to move. So when you have that much stuff that you're dealing with, simplicity is, is the key. So you try to minimize the hardware, the support hardware, you try to minimize the amount of data that you can, but I mean... The fact of the matter, I mean, LEDs and pixel mapping, it's, it's a, we live and die by that now. It's, oh, it's, mm-hmm. it's here to stay. DMX is not, personally, my personal opinion, it's just, it's, it's not the best way to do that. You know, a magic panel, when it's on its full pixel mappable configuration, is a, it's 160 DMX channels. It's three per universe. Right. I mean, there's got to be a better way to do that. I mean, we're starting to see fixtures now that can take ArtNet directly to the fixture. I mean, all our our fixtures do. Um, streaming yeah. ECN right to the fixture. So so they can do streaming ECN right to the Yeah, fixture. we're getting there. Oh, yeah, our fixtures will do streaming ECN. But there's got to be a wetter, better way to manipulate, uh, to control this stuff uh, a little more efficiently because... I mean, when you come right down to it, streaming ACN still breaks things into universes. It's still, it's still working with that old terminology and that old concept. Yeah. Which is sort of strange because there's absolutely no reason for it other than, I guess, trying to get people to to adapt to it. But you know what's it's interesting all to help is your brain. Yep. <laughs> and the other thing about it is the, yeah, you know, we get we get fixtures all the time where I'll get a an LED fixture. Oh, it can take ArtNet. Yeah, it can take like eight to ten universes of ArtNet. It can't take a hundred universes of ArtNet. <laughs> and that's you know, and that's unfortunately that's some of these shows that we're doing. Right. You know, the scale of the shows are well, the have, ones where it's most critical to have. Artnet are the ones where it can't handle the amount of Artnet you're sending. Yeah, so it forces us into XLRs. It forces us into more processing. You know, the infrastructure to support it is, you know, LED, these LED fixtures are fantastic. Creatively, what we can do with them is amazing. Um, but the the infrastructure needed to support them is is pretty pretty expensive and pretty vast yeah. and we're and we're, we're and i don't think the the it's still evolving here but um we're going to we're certainly making a stab at that you know we've invested heavily in gigabit fiber optic I and mean, we've been a huge proponent of fiber optic for 15 plus years actually well it's built onto the back of the virtuoso that's correct mm-hmm. uh, and it's the core part of our s400 system and now we as a company are moving on to gigabit fiber uh, we've invested significantly in fiber optic, uh, gigabit fiber optic switches that are, that can handle the the vast amount of data that we that we're starting to push around. Um, you know, we I do a lot of system drawings and stuff like that, and how all this stuff gets interconnected. And it's the system drawing now has become it's as invaluable as a rigging plot. 
you know, I can't hang the show without a lighting plot or a rigging plot. And now I can't control the show unless I have a system, system plot. You know plot. where it's all going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unfortunately, the system plots tend to look like someone threw spaghetti up on a piece of paper. <laughs> I was going to say, they, they can't be really pretty. It's, it's uh, yeah. <laughs> I'll say this. When it comes to, like, some of the data merging that we're doing with LEDs where you're pixel mapping, it's gotten to the point now where you can't really cowboy this stuff anymore. Yeah. You've got to plan it out ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And you've got to very, you know, when you, when you go into the shop, not only do you need to address and label, you know, address your lights and label your cable, you've got to make sure that your data, your infrastructure to support all that, you know, the data distribution is, is tested and vetted and set up ahead of time. Uh, that's as, as important, if not more, uh, now. But you just can't. And that's something we struggle with on a daily basis with people is that they try to... No, oh, shoot from the hip. We'll just kind of make it work. And, you know, when you're dealing with this amount of data, that doesn't quite work like that anymore. Yeah. But that leads to another problem. I th- my personal pro- belief in the, is that, you know, we, I think we have a little bit of a knowledge gap here in, in the business. And that shows have become, uh, used to be you knew a lot about a, a little bit of stuff. Now you know a little bit about a lot of stuff. Um, the equipment's gotten much more sophisticated We've seen guys, we've seen specialties emerge like system technicians and server techs and stuff like that. Networking has become a a huge thing now. And I think there's a skills gap currently with, you know, Ethernet networking and the knowledge necessary to to not only design and set something up like that, but to troubleshoot when there's a problem. Are we needing an IT department? God, I hope not. But yeah, yeah, you're I right. Mean, no, it is. I, I, explaining explaining consoles to my brother, who is a computer IT guy, was like, "Wait, what are you running? What you doing there? How's this working?" And he got really interested in how the consoles were starting yeah. to me. I'm, and, and you know, you think about what we do on a show. We do everything with computers that you're not supposed to do. You know, right? Exactly. <laughs> put them on a truck. We heat them up in sun and cold. You got dust and you know forklifts driving yeah. over your cables. Yep. I mean, so yeah. I mean, so I think there's a little bit of a skills gap. But I think you know, certainly like the ETCP is trying to close that gap a little bit. And there's a lot of lot of literature and a lot of people trying to to do that. But certainly on our side, that's something that we struggle with is supporting. Clients like with that. I know PRG has been a big uh, proponent of ETCP. They're a supporter, which is great. But I'm guilty myself. I, I don't know how to program a managed switch for Ethernet purposes. There's, you know, there's a lot of it that I, de- I depend on the consoles to sort of handle because you know, as long as you use all the hardware that works together and you plug it all together, it should work. Yeah, you know, and I have, a, I have a, and this is uh, something that I, you shouldn't have to. In this day and age, I mean, you look at what your iPhone does. Your mm-hmm. iPhone's a very sophisticated piece of equipment, but it has a great user interface. It's very intuitive and easy to use. Uh, there's no reason why you can't apply that that same design philosophy to some uh, to to networking. And we're finally seeing products out that can do that, like the Pathway Via 12 Ethernet switch, gigabit switch, has some very sophisticated management features on it. But they've put a great user interface. You don't need a laptop to configure it. You know, you can do everything from the front. And I, I, I don't, in Pathway, Luminex, and ELC, those are all companies that have finally started putting stuff out that's a little easier to use, a little user-friendly, and mm-hmm. don't require eighth-degree black belt Cisco training to, to make <laughs> it happen. But the downside of that is that that gear is expensive. It's not cheap. And so we, and something that we always fight, that you get quarter million dollars worth of lighting gear and it's all hanging on an Ethernet switch, a $20 Ethernet switch that they bought at Staples. Right. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's true. Because, you know, and designers don't want, they don't care about the infrastructure. They only care about the lights and the control and how mm-hmm. everything happens in between. So as a rental company, we're like, we've invested heavily in, you know, entertainment grade switches like the, like the pathway switch. And, but we're competing against competitors who throw a Dell switch on it. And, right. Uh, you know, how do you, it's tough. But I think users are finally going, you know, the Dell switch doesn't cut it. <laughs> how do you troubleshoot it? How do you fix it? You know? When you when you call when you have a problem with a Dell switch, you, you're talking to somebody in another country who doesn't even know what DMX is. Right. Whereas, like, if you have a problem with a Luminex or ELC or a, or a Pathway switch, you're talking to people who know what DMX is and who do, who do shows and who used to do shows. So, I mean, it's. But and like I said, that those products have just started coming out, and the price has come down, and we're seeing a lot more. Certainly, we that's where we're going. PRG is right. Also, speaking of people that uh, provide support who used to do shows, let's talk about you. <laughs> what was your sort of entree into the business? Uh, detention. Uh-huh. I got caught in high school uh, super gluing someone's locker shut. Uh, I can't tell you why I was doing that, but uh, I ended up, uh, I got a Friday detention, and the theater teacher came in and said they needed someone to hang lights, and they were behind schedule in the theater. So that is my... Very nefarious beginning to this business. Awesome. <laughs> I like that story very yeah, much. Yeah. So I yeah. So I got that's how I got into theater and I just stayed with it and then I went to college and then I loved doing theater in college and so I ended up majoring in it and did a lot of shows and while in college I did a lot of rock and roll and I, I liked that more than I liked doing theater. And, you know, Verilites were the big thing back then. So I managed to get an internship with Verilite in Dallas, um, which was great. I mean, I learned a lot and it was just like, oh, this is what I want to do. And I was very fortunate that at the end of my internship, I got hired by Verilite. So I went through my entire senior year and caught, co- but I said, I had, I had still had college to finish. So they still hired me. I finished off my year in, in college, got my degree. And then as soon as I graduated, I went to work for Verilite in New York. Wow. So, which was pretty awesome. And I, you know, I spent, spent a year and a half in the shop almost a you know, year and a half uh, learning how to fix everything, which was the best thing I've ever did. It sucked. I started in the cable department and totally sucked, but uh, there's no way I could have done what I do now without having that experience. Of course you have to know how it all, where yeah. it all comes from, how it all goes together, yeah. all that stuff. And you know, in that, in that time period, we had to be able to fix things. Now it tends to be more of the toaster mechanic, like, oh, it's broken, go get a new one, go, go get a right. new fixture. Back then it's like, it's broken, open it up, fix, fix it. Fix it. Um, so then I started doing shows as like the third or fourth guy in the crew and, you know, worked my way up to crew chief. And then I started touring uh, as a crew chief and the tours got bigger and bigger and bigger and the shows got bigger and bigger. And I was very fortunate that I got on the crew for a couple big global stadium stuff like the Olympics. So, and that was one of the crew chiefs in Athens for the Olympics there, summer Olympics. That was interesting, you know, loading into a venue while they're still building the venue around you and stuff right. like that. Wow. Seriously. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it was great. What I really liked about that was that I did a lot of TV. I did a lot of touring and then uh, a lot of special event stuff. So it was, I had a, a nice mix, corporate industrial stuff too. So mm-hmm. it was a little bit across the board. Well-rounded. Yeah. That's great. And then when I started touring, I started... Uh, Eventually, I took over, I did one tour where I started off as crew chief and then took over as lighting director, and I started programming, mm-hmm. uh, and I did a little bit of that for a while. And was then, that on Virtuoso? Uh, yeah, that was Virtuoso. Virtuoso and Hog was split between mm-hmm. uh, Hog 2. Um, 
And then finally, I was getting a little burned out on it all. And uh, an opportunity was offered to me to do more of the development stuff. So I moved over to that. So, and I've been doing that since. And what's interesting is even though I still actually do a fair amount of shows now, yeah. uh, a lot of the stuff shows I do now is I help get up and running and then I get to walk away. So I don't have to tour it in and out. Mm-hmm. Um, the best part of it. That's great. I still, you know, I, and then some of the big stuff I still get involved, you know, it's like the, like the Super Bowl and stuff like that. That's cool. Which is not, I should say, is not for the faint of heart. Any of that. I can imagine. But touring, having the pressure of touring on a day day in, day out definitely helped with doing that kind of stuff, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you started doing development, was, were you still with Verilite at the time? or had that... No, by that point, we were PRG. Okay. Yeah. So you, you came over with the... The VLPS, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were Verilite, then Verilite New York, and then Verilite Production Services, then VLPS, and then VLPS became part of PRG. So and, and that transition seems to have worked out well for you. So far, Yeah. It's an interesting. It's an interesting company. We have we do a lot of really cool projects, and there's a lot of great people here. Um, uh, every day is different, yeah. which is what I like. To bring this back to something we were talking about earlier, you mentioned that you have to manage the cash flow for some of these products that you're trying to manage. You know, where they have to come up with money for initial development, for all the raw materials, for et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, for the optics, et cetera. The whole action of building your own fixture. TRJ is a genuine multinational corporation. Mm-hmm. How does that sort of concept fit into an organization like this? This is show business, not show friends. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, uh, although we are doing art, I mean, we are doing some very cool stuff. There, it is, there is art to it. But, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, we're here to make some money. Now, I don't want to sound callous, but, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, there, there's a reason why we're doing shows. And the artists are, are there to make money. We're there to make money as important as the art is, and I don't mean to discredit that by any stretch of the imagination, um, the, the financial side is important. I get to talk to a lot of high school and a lot of college students a lot, and that's something I, I try to emphasize. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm happy that you, you're in it for the art, but at the end of the day, you're still going to have to negotiate a contract with somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, So you need to understand the business side of that. And I mean, it's just. I try to explain that to people too when they talk to me about this. I mean, it's too. a business. I'm like, it's a business. And yeah. so, when it comes to development, you know, take some classes in it. Yeah, you know, read a read a book. You don't need to be, you know, you don't MBA. Have to be grad. a business manager. No. You just have to learn what it takes to do it. And and uh, and when it comes to product development, that's something I will say. In years past, that was not something that we were very good about. Like we would go all in and. But we've gotten much better. We're much better about that. Before we even start a project, we have a target price point that we're looking, a rental price point and, you know, a purchase price point that we're looking at. And that's important, Mm -hmm. you know, and how much that when you're in development, that's something that we look at is, do you really need to do another prototype? Because that adds to the cost of everything. We try to minimize unnecessary expenditures. And we try to do as much as possible in the computer ahead of time so that we're not building multiple prototypes since maybe one or right. two at the most before you're there at the final version. So, yeah, the money is an important side of this, without mm-hmm. a doubt. And it's not overtly complex. If we're building a light, the market's only willing to pay a certain amount for that light at the end of the day, period. And can you afford to build your light for that? The advantage, we have it a little easier than the other manufacturers being a rental company because if they're selling lights, they have to have a certain amount of margin to sell it. As a rental company, yeah, we'd like to have that margin, but primarily when we build our products for rental, you know, we're going to make the money off the rental, not off selling it to ourselves. 
But there's some additional things that that help us greatly that doesn't help a, a company that's selling lights. And that if I can build a product that is cheaper to service, the parts are cheaper. Mm-hmm. So the cost of ownership is a lot lower. That helps our bottom line all mm-hmm. the way around. If I can build a light that's more reliable. Was that, can, was that the concept behind using servos and everything rather than steppers? Nope. Servos was strictly speed. I'm just wondering. Yeah. No, no, that's a good question. I get that question a lot. It's strictly about speed. But one of the things that you see in our lights when you take them apart is they're super user-friendly to take apart very fast. And that time is money. You know, Mm -hmm. if I got to swap a ballast, swapping a ballast on a VL3000, you know, it's five, ten minutes. On a Best Boy, it's six screws, you're done. I mean, it's it's really quick. And a 3000 is a heck of a lot easier than a lot of fixtures out there. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm not saying that the no, no, no. It's yeah. just a, just just for example, yeah. like yeah, ten minutes is a long time, but that's nothing compared to some yeah. But when you, you have to, we have to rip the thing apart to get into the all those little bit you all, know, all the parts. Absolutely. And then when you scale that out, like you know, okay, let's say I got to change five ballasts or six ballasts out of three hundred lights, or that that's an hour. Yeah. That's a you know, it's yeah. man hours. So. You know, those are things that we look at when we're working, when we're developing stuff. That's a really, really good point. Yeah. I mean, some of the things that infuriate me to no end, I hate the idea that you have to have a dongle to upload software to equipment. I mean, because inevitably you don't have the dongle when you need it. It just takes time. You got to connect the computer. That's why all our products, we can load software straight off the computer right to the head. And we're just trying to reduce that time factor and and the gap necessary to to make that happen. Well, I feel like one of the other things that it offers you is control over the software. I have a summer festival I do with LD Andrew Grant. Uh, and we had some LED fixtures that had some real firmware problems. And well, this is this company in another country that if they come up with new software, they have no way to force all of the rental shops and people that have purchased these things to load the software onto the fixtures. Software is, I mean, it's not, a, it's something we struggle with on a daily basis, making sure everything has the same software. Mm-hmm. You know, fortunately, a lot of the stuff doesn't have, maybe in the initially you'll see three or four software versions after the fixture initially comes out. After that, it'll go for a while. I mean, like Series 400, for instance, the last time we did a software update was like 2009. Wow. No, maybe even 2008, something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's been a while. And we're, f- we're finally about to release a new version here very, very soon. So what do you see for the future of the business, you know, near, near term, long term? Well, I see, I certainly see more networking. You know, I see Ethernet's definitely here to stay. Mm-hmm. I definitely see more specialties. On the, on the people side, like guys and gals that are specialized. You know, you have your Moonlight techs, you have your network techs, you have your media server techs. Um, so I see that. I definitely think that, or I'd like to see, and I hope we're going to get there, is that uh, some of the control stuff gets a little easier for us. You know, hundreds of universes of DMX is crazy, you know. I definitely see moving more to ACN and Art... Uh, well, we're currently using ArtNet, but moving more to a streaming ACN and even to the last mile... Last mile? The last mile to the truss. Oh, oh, oh not, not just for your backbone around a venue, but yeah. to the truss is going to be a thing. Absolutely. We're going to see less of a separation between, you know, video and lighting and scenery. I think all three of those are, we're all going to have to play much better. I mean, we're already playing well together and there's always a lot, there's already a lot of integration, Absolutely. but I think it's going to get even more integrated than it is now. I think we're winding down here. Uh, do you have any sort of final thoughts, things you want to mention, or you know, any kind of like, here's some advice for people that are entering the business now? Don't cook bacon while you're naked. 
Those are those are words of wisdom right there. Absolutely. Yeah, it hurts. No, but yeah, yes. Uh, no, but in all seriousness, uh, you know, it's this is a great business. I mean, it's it's a lot of fun. I mean, we're not saving lives, but you know, there is a lot of money involved with this business, and I tell people, new people coming in, I mean, so try to understand a little bit about the business, not just the art, but understand the business. Mm-hmm. And I tell a lot of people when they're coming in to, you know, don't don't try to pigeonhole yourself like, oh, I'm only going to be a programmer. You want to try to try to expand your horizons a little bit, you know, understand the mechanics of how some of this equipment works because I think it'll make you a better designer, a uh, better programmer. Um and I also tell, and I also tell a lot of students like look at look at shows. Don't just look at shows that you like. Look at shows you don't like. Uh, a lot of people are like, oh, I love doing this. You know, I love EDM or I love this band. And that's great. But look at the stuff that you don't like because at some point in your career, you're going to be doing stuff that you don't want to do or music that you don't like or mm-hmm. or something. So you got to excellent point. You know, <laughs> excellent point. Yeah, you don't have to like it to do it. I mean, you can still do a really good job and enjoy your job. You don't have to like the band that you're you're working for or the show that you're working on. Um, and I sense I think sometimes people forget about that. And the other thing I think people get hung up on is, is the glamour. Like, oh my God, I'm working on Britney Spears this week, or, or I'm doing this show or that show, and that that is cool. I'm not trying to take that away, but don't take a job just because it's glamorous, right? You know. And that would be the last thing I tell people is watch out for yourself. Make sure that you know you're you're getting paid fairly. Make sure you're working safely. Your employer isn't just responsible for yourself, but you should be responsible for yourself as well. Um, work safely is the last thing. Is there's I mean there's eight million ways to kill yourself with this equipment, and there's eight million ways to injure not only performers but audience members as well. And there's no there's no need for this. So you know work smart. Absolutely. So people can go to PRG.com to uh, find you, find all your products, learn about the other stuff that you manage, and then get in touch with you? Yeah, and I would I would encourage people. I said if you have – my email is on, on the website under my bio and on my product pages. Ask questions. That's actually probably the last thing I should say is okay. ask questions. I don't expect to know everything. You don't need to know everything. I certainly don't know everything. I ask a lot of questions. I ask everybody. I ask questions all the time. My info's there. If people, have, if any of your listeners have a question, please reach out. I'll be happy to answer it for you. So, you know, I may not get to you right away, but <laughs> but please, I will. I will. Tr- I will make the best effort. So, we're here to help you. All right, Chris. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, have an awesome week. Thank well, you again. Well, certainly. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. You can use the contact form there to let us know what you think, and you can find all of our previous episodes there. We're also on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast and on Twitter at Podcasting Light. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by The Lame Drivers. You can learn more about them at lamedrivers.com. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for downloading, and have a good show. Let's get the gold, come to you.